Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 124. Speak and Destroy is the first podcast featuring interviews about Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is A.L. Levy, the CEO of URM Academy, host of the Riff Hard podcast, and guitarist for the band Doff. In this wide-ranging and illuminating conversation, we talk about A.L.'s upbringing as the son of a famous conductor, his introduction into metal, a whole bunch of Metallica, of course, a great story about Yngwie Malmsteen, and a whole lot more. A.L. is also an accomplished producer and engineer in the rock and metal world, having worked with bands like the Black Dahlia Murder and the Contortionist. You remember the best way to support this podcast is to leave a five-star rating and write a nice little review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform of choice. You can keep up with everything related to the podcast and find all of the social media handles at speakanddestroy.com. And you can do the same with me and all of my various endeavors at ryanjdowney.com. So here it is, my conversation with A.L. Levy of Doth. This is Speak and Destroy. What was your first experience with music, generally speaking? Like as a kid, what were you first exposed to? How did you first fall in love with it? And just as importantly, at what point did you recognize, okay, this isn't just something that I love, but this is something I need to participate in. I need to be part of this. That's a tough one for me. That's a tough one because, uh, so this is a tough one for me because I think when I hear people answer this question, usually they'll have like something that happened. They, they were taken to a concert or their older brother was into something. And with me, it's more like I was immersed in it. I, from the womb basically, because of what my dad does for a living, he's a symphony conductor. So it was literally just everywhere at all times. And so I don't think I really had a choice in the matter. I think uh, it was one of those things where there really was no other path for me. Uh, so I never really questioned it. It's what I wanted to do since I was a little kid. And I don't think that it ever went for me from a not loving music state to loving music state. Uh, I think it was just baked in, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's, and it's a very unique uh, experience as well. I mean, you know, we hear and, and read a lot about, you know, as parents, like playing music for kids in the womb, you know, people talking about putting headphones up against the, you know, the mom's stomach. And uh, it sounds like that was 
probably actually happening for you. I would imagine. Some version. Yeah, if your if your mom was ever dropping by your dad's place of work, there's a symphony happening, right? Yeah. Well, there's so that, and so if you think about everything that goes along with that, so Mm -hmm. uh, my dad studying um, what he was going to be conducting. So he would do that at home, and I know that he would do it sometimes by listening, and um, sometimes he would just read the score with nothing playing and listen in his head. But lots of the times involved him sitting in this like studio he had and just blasting it and then listening to it in the car on the way everywhere and then going to concerts all the time and it just was nonstop their friends were all players in um in the symphony or they were the soloists that were coming through and then the soloists would rehearse at our house uh so it was just like this nonstop thing and i do think that that I'm not sure if like putting the headphones up to mom's belly makes a difference or not, but I think the idea, the idea that's being conveyed is what matters that uh, what you expose them to at a young age matters. It's crazy because uh, I know your father and and obviously for, for listeners who aren't that familiar, but I know your father is a very worldly uh person you know born in romania raised in israel and then has studied and worked uh you know in europe and uh obviously here in the states as well and um i want to say south korea is somewhere in the resume um all all over the place yeah it's wild um tell me a little bit about that how you know because i often think you know metallica being our our conversational anchor here something that's come up on the podcast before that I've often thought about is I think part of the appeal of Metallica that pushed them even further into the international stratosphere beyond some of their peers is the fact that Lars is Danish and was, you know, raised an early part of his childhood in Europe and transplanted to the States and a big fan of UK heavy metal. And, you know, even little things like him putting the Danish flag on his drum kit. Uh, I feel like there was an accessibility maybe internationally uh, where fans could sort of relate to like, you know, this is an American metal band, but there's a European metal guy in the band. And, uh, you know, I look at the current lineup of Megadeth and, you know, we have a, a metal guitar hero from South America. We have a Swedish metal dude and I feel like, you know, that stuff, if not consciously, maybe subconsciously, does help broaden the the appeal of a band just by nature of the broadened uh, life experience and kind of worldviews. So I'm, I'm really curious uh, for someone like yourself, you know, relative to me, for example, where I grew up in Indiana, I was born and raised there, um, spent, you know, was there until my mid to late twenties and have spent the next half of my life in California. And that's really been it. You know, as a kid, I didn't travel anywhere. I never left the country. Gosh, I don't think I left the country until my twenties, you know, touring and playing shows in Canada, (laughs) which, um, which doesn't feel that much like leaving the country even necessarily. Uh, So yeah, it wasn't until I was in my late twenties that I had even traveled to Europe or Japan or anywhere. So yeah, I'm I'm curious um, 
how your dad's international experience as a creative person and as a professional, how that shaped your upbringing. Well, um, I have a theory that part of what helped Metallica succeed, um, was that Lars's dad, um, had already succeeded mm. and that must have planted a seed in, in Lars's brain that this was possible. And so the parallel, I guess, would be that for me versus a lot of my friends, uh, I grew up traveling to concerts. I grew up around nothing but people who had made this happen, like and made, I guess, the unrealistic realistic. Uh, it didn't seem unrealistic to me. Um, it seemed to me like uh, this was something that you could do that you could go almost anywhere in the world and find people who were great at it and find people who appreciated it and that it was possible and doable and just I didn't even question it. Whereas I remember growing up, lots of my friends whose uh, parents were more from the real world, it, uh, they had a lot of problems. They, they came up against a lot of resistance. And I know that for a lot of my friends, the thought of doing a band seriously or getting signed or touring overseas or any of that stuff, it just seemed like stuff that happens for other people or it's just not realistic but i think uh yeah the the fact that uh metallica already had a transplant that it so and it all also the fact that there was already some success in an unrealistic field uh in the lineage i think that that helped a lot um yeah and then obviously if you're exposed to other cultures um and you're going to develop a deeper understanding for how the world works and for how to communicate with people. Um, and I don't know exactly how it happens or how it works, but I know that it does. Um, and I'm sure that um, Lars's worldliness uh, helped the band. It had to, how could it not? Yeah, that's a great point. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about, uh sort of a, the, the twin pillars of those of these two i interrelated ideas or interconnected ideas that yeah having that example because we often think you know fame and fortune and success as being these like one in a million lightning bolt situations which they certainly are in a sense uh but on the other hand the idea that you can have a career in the creative arts and and what that means and uh the different ways that you can define success, right? Because I'm, you know, having a little bit of, uh, it's funny, I haven't talked about this on a podcast at all, but uh, one of my kids uh, turned 15 recently and she's, uh, you know, taking advanced art classes and getting A pluses in them and has always been very creatively inclined in terms of uh, drawing and illustration and things like that. And you know, she's really leaning towards some kind of career in the arts, but then she does have other 
forces, you know, within her family, uh, you know, with the more kind of modest conservative view, which is uh, naturally comes from a, a good place of concern and care, but of saying like, you know, you can't, you can't make a living as an artist, you know, and uh, arguably, you know, I've built a career and, and worked in the creative arts and there's other people even in my daughter's family who have as well, you know, uh, my older brother, her uncle is a tattooer, uh, her, uh, her mom's brother-in-law, uh, you know, plays bass in the Vandals and started Kung Fu records. And, you know, so, I mean, there's, there's precedent right here in the family yep. of like, this is possible. And yet still, she does have those more kind of conservative voices right now at, at this very important kind of juncture of figuring out who you want to be as a teenager you know, telling her like, you you know, you got to have a day job. You got to, you got to have a real job. You can't just do this stuff. And, you know, we got uh, snowed out by the weather in Seattle and had to cancel our trip. But we were originally, I was taking the kids um, up to Washington to hang out with the Clarks over the holidays. And part of my motivation, other than those being close friends and people we like to spend time with was also to immerse my daughter and like, you know, Hey, check out this, uh, you know, award-winning barn where <laughs> Don Clark sits all day and, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, works on campaigns for Chipotle and Xbox and, uh, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, so, yeah, that is a really great point that you make about having those examples in your life early that this is possible and it doesn't necessarily need to be because, as you note, you know, the great Torben Ulrich is, was already very successful if not in the way that we would associate when we think about rock stars or, or what have you. It's interesting to me, you have two siblings, is that right? Yep. And all of you are creative people, right? You all ended up making, you, you, you could say that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're all, and, you all work in the arts for a living. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. So that does feel like a little bit of uh determinism, I guess. <laughs> I think <laughs> right. so. I, I think so. Um, and it wasn't forced on us that that's a thing that's important to note i mean obviously uh there was i guess a bias in that direction but it wasn't forced on us at all um what i'm doing now for instance is uh 100 i figured it out um and came to it but i definitely think that um what what you're around when you're growing up is going to play a big part in um, who you become it, i mean that's not like that's not like some big revelation so i think that actually being around rock stars or like those like one in ten million types that might be a little detrimental to uh mm. to a kid because that might that i could see how that would screw their head up but just being around people who have made it work in uh, creative fields or, you know, in the sports world who just have like uh, regular lives as a result of doing this to where uh, you don't have this idea of it's either you're Tom Cruise or you're starving. Right. Nothing else. Right. Either you're in Metallica or you're like a loser. Like it's really really good to see that there's actually 
a number of ways to make it work and yes. there's a whole industry and there's all different there's all different types of success within it and it's something that uh i know when i went to berkeley some of the uh professors were trying to explain that to people but the students mostly didn't want to hear it or didn't understand it and but i think that because i grew up with it like it didn't need to be explained to me it was no. I just already kind of understood how this works there's one superstar and then there's um a whole industry of people that have jobs because of them and uh there's there's room for a lot of people in it in every creative field right uh, God, again great point i mean and, and it, 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 it would be important to learn as a young person you know as much as you see the life of a james hetfield or a lars ulrich to understand that like there are dozens and dozens of people who have really cool jobs just adjacent to that one band you know whether it's yeah. folks who work at q prime or or their record label or you know as we're recording this episode just yesterday it was there was a news story about metallica buying their own pressing plant uh oh. which i thought i thought they owned one prior so this might even be a second pressing plant but they just purchase the pressing plant because they make so much vinyl that they may as well own their own place. And it's like, you know, those are gigs. Those are gigs in the creative arts. Somebody, you know, they're not there pressing those records. Somebody's doing it. Uh, and, and yeah, it's, uh, I think it with fine arts, that's another place much like music where there's this binary of like, Oh, well you're either selling paintings for millions of dollars each time, or you're a starving artist who, you know, is waiting tables and, no one wants to come to your gallery showing. And it's like, no, there are a million degrees in between those places that are fulfilling lives of and contributions creatively that uh, that are a lot cooler than, you know, a typical day job, I guess. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and, you know, the, the part about, the part that makes uh, somebody a superstar is not, in that person's control that's uh that's one of those things that uh you know i'm definitely a make your own luck type but only to a, only to a degree there is a there's a degree beyond what we're able to control and the collective the collective subconscious will either resonate with something or it won't and so an artist comes around at the right time and does the right thing and it just happens to explode and then they do all the right things business wise. That's that there's so much there that is outside of any one person's control that it's, it's not to say that it's bad to go for that, to go for that if you want that. But, um, it, I think that it's, uh, it shouldn't be seen as like settling for less or, mm. um, or like you failed or something if you don't end up in the next Metallica because that is basically out of your control and super unlikely. Like yeah. super, super, super unlikely. So combinations of so many things yeah. between raw talent, experience, hard work, discipline, dedication. And then you and I, of course, have been doing this long enough that we've both encountered people where they are wildly successful uh, in spite of the fact that they are undisciplined or, you know, not that great, so to speak. 
and we've been known folks who are brilliant and work super hard and never quite made it quote unquote so that's i think a truism across any field and 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 that's also something that you know for all of the reliable stable jobs that people can have in other industries that aren't the creative arts all those same variables apply you know but nothing guarantees that by nature of being an architect or a lawyer or a doctor that you're going to be a huge success within that field or that you won't encounter obstacles and uncertainties and you know unpredictable uh closures of businesses and and so on so yeah, it's all a crapshoot yeah indeed it's a combination of so many things so growing up music's already there there was never and i think this is fascinating by the way because it is a really unique experience that there wasn't a, an aha moment for you it was just part of it um with the kind of music that was around you from your parents and your family and everything when did you start to carve out your own place in it in terms of like okay here now now i love this stuff that my parents don't necessarily like um where did that enter in for you puberty like like most people um <laughs> yeah so while there was a lot of great musical influence in my house there they were also super closed off to um to rock to pop to any anything that was i guess modern um modern and that they didn't understand they they weren't into also you got to keep in mind that um my parents came to the US when they were already like i think my dad was 30 mm. my mom was 27 they were already fully formed adults and they were, they kind of had a bit of a culture shock when they came here um they had never really heard rock music before or anything like that and uh they didn't know what to make of it and they didn't want it in the house so uh i wasn't allowed to watch mtv we didn't listen to the radio uh nothing like that so metal came into my life through friends and uh my grandmother that uh would buy me stuff behind my parents back she, she was cool uh she you know she like went and like uh washed the doors in paris after they had already been uh banned from everywhere else and she was into it but Overall, like I had to kind of sneak it. And so I would just discover it through, uh, through my friends. Now, the reason that I got into metal, I don't know. Cause there were, there lots of different kinds of music that were not allowed at my house, but metal is the one that, um, that I gravitated towards. And I think that that is kind of similar to what you hear most, most people say, which is that, uh, it just captivated them and then they just wanted more mm. and heavier and more extreme kind of like chasing a high almost but yeah never i remember when i was like 13 i just wanted something heavier like it just there's this like itch or something that's not quite getting scratched and then so next thing you know you're at pantera and then that's awesome but then it's not heavy enough and then slayer and then that's awesome and then it's not heavy enough and for you know it, it's like cannibal corpse and morbid angel and you know that whole trajectory, but I don't know why the, the why I don't know. I do know that there had to be some rebellion against my parents cause they didn't let me have it. Um, 
but that can't be all of it because I didn't get into country music and we didn't. Right. They weren't into country music. You, you weren't into either. gangster rap and they probably weren't into that. No, either. <laughs> no definitely not. And, uh, but something about metal um, and, you know, Metallica in what, 1992, 91, those years were when I kind of started to get into that. Um, how could you Black not? Album era. Yeah. Black album era. How could you not be influenced by that? Um, and especially with uh, their year and a half in the life of videos, uh, because actually I had grown up traveling um, for music, grown up going to my dad's recording sessions. So seeing them do all that stuff that uh, I already knew was kind of real um, because I had done it, uh, it kind of, I don't know, it just kind of made sense that metal is metal's the path i guess yeah so yeah i think that those year and a half in the life of videos were were more than the music itself i think those were kind of instrumental in me deciding to actually go for metal and that brings up a, a great segue in my mind which is skipping quite a bit ahead and then i want to come back to where we are chronologically but uh was there a point uh you know, later in life for you? I mean, first of all, I think about the symphonic nature of, I mean, there's a whole subgenre called symphonic metal, mm -hmm. uh, but even something like, say, the song Master of Puppets or, you know, Creeping Death or, I mean, there's, there's so much in the Metallica catalog that's literary, that functions like classical pieces with, you know, different movements and sections and all of that. Was there ever uh, a... Uh, coming together or a meeting of the minds with your dad where he was able to connect some dots and go like, okay, like I'm, I'm not into what you're into and I don't get it necessarily, but I can see that there's, that it correlates somehow. More recently. Uh, I think back in the day, even when he conducted that Ingve album, uh, I'm not so sure that he was totally like connecting the dots. And I know that when I would play him, symphonic metal stuff back in the day he was he thought it sounded like like a second rate soundtrack wannabe wannabe shit basically but yeah. he was not impressed i think uh but more recently um i think he's starting he has begun to see like see the link i guess uh, did he hear snm uh i don't know if he heard snm um, that might be a good one to slide them. I'm not sure, but I did try to, I did try several different ways to, so I might've shown him that, but it was, it was just like a losing proposition. So <laughs> I kind of, I kind of quit after a little while. Um, I, did, I didn't know about the Ingbe thing. So what, what he did, he did what conducted the, it was called like the millennium concerto, I believe. And, uh, so yeah, like in 96 or 97, I actually read in a guitar magazine that Ingve was going to do that. Like he was saying that he was going to write a concerto for electric guitar and orchestra. And I just logged it in my head that I don't know how, but I was, I, my dad should conduct it. Wow. We, we didn't know anybody in the metal world or anything wow. like that. This was completely like, just, uh, like just a thing, but when I heard that Ingve was coming to Atlanta 
for a show on tour, I figured, why don't I ask my dad's management at the orchestra to contact Ingve's management and say that there's a symphony conductor that wants to meet you and see what happens. Like total again, crapshoot. But uh they actually got back to us and Ingve invited us to his hotel and um it's really weird sitting in my dad's car with Ingve in the front seat with like beer and cigarettes, like throwing bottles out the window and his like custom clothes from seventeen ninety five and my dad, who uh hasn't he hasn't done a drug in his life is like is really really not that really two completely different people um but he played us the demo for it he had it on cassette it was like with like a keyboard orchestra and his guitar and uh, it sounded kind of cool and then a few months later they hit us up uh or my dad up actually not us to see if he wanted to conduct the real thing. So we went to Prague a few months later and uh, watched that recording session. It was cool. Dude, first of all, this is, I don't know what percentage, 80% of the reason why I even do podcasts is it's an opportunity to get to know my friends and people I admire better and call it work at the same time. I didn't know any of this. (laughs) I had no idea um, about this Ingve record or that, you went to Prague or I didn't watch any of it happen. That's incredible. Especially knowing that your dad uh, was by no means um, a rock or a, a metal guy that, that makes it even cooler. So yeah, he, he was, he did it actually for me. Um, he did it because he knew that I was an Ingve fan and why not? Uh, he, he wasn't really that into it, um, but That's so cool. Yeah. It, it, that, that, now looking back now i realize how insane it is to just randomly hit up some rock star and expect anything to happen um but it but i guess again back to what we were saying before that it just nothing seemed unrealistic so yeah it seemed like your dad very well could do that and you were correct because then he did (laughs) yeah exactly and that's that's how things happen is like someone contacts somebody else and uh then people it's like that's how it always works is one person gets an idea and then contacts somebody through management it's not crazy like it's there's nothing crazy about it it's uh, actually pretty mundane so i think knowing that that's that it was that simple made it seem realistic enough to just fuck it just try yeah and hey some fathers and sons go on fishing trips (laughs) you got to do that we got to do that and it was uh it was an interesting experience for sure but even then yeah just uh i feel like if he did that and still was not into the symphonic side of metal uh yeah after that i kind of stopped trying. right right like because you're not gonna you're not gonna get it you're not gonna get like um a better taste of it than actually doing it i guess so where did uh instruments come in for you actually playing uh, instruments yourself a violin and piano when i was like three or four wow um so right away it, and i did not enjoy it at <laughs> all did so you because, have that experience though that because I, I a lot of rock musicians that i talked to that started on piano or violin talk about how 
while they didn't enjoy it at the time, those are very foundational instruments that ended up applying to, you know, guitars and keys and drums and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, they didn't have to practice with my dad right next to them. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's kind of a big difference. I think, yeah. um, I, I think you got to understand that in classical, there are nine year olds that, uh, that are as good as the adults. I mean, they're, they're yeah. phenoms yeah. of course, but they exist. Um, there's always one or two making the rounds, like some seven-year-old playing Beethoven piano concertos or whatever. Some it it happens, and it happens enough to where I think that that was the expectation, mm. and uh, that that didn't that didn't work for me. So I actually hated it, um, and I think maybe it was foundational, but I don't know. I I don't really I don't really know. It had to be though, right? sure but i also understand that you didn't have uh enough of a pleasant experience with it to even think about connecting those dots but but yeah i'm sure it's i'm sure it's in there Uh, so yeah but you obviously at some point then uh switched to guitar was that another kind of forbidden fruit like your grandmother getting records for you was that did you have to kind of keep it on the down low that you're playing you're riffing <laughs> well i hadn't played violin and piano for a while i switched to drawing and uh illustrating because i didn't want i just didn't want to make music but i think after seeing year and a half mm. in the life of metallica and just seeing that um it just seemed like electric guitar is like the way and the light uh so i tried to get them to buy me one and they were not down. So they made me take classical guitar for six months, um, which is a stupid thing to do. It really is, because I think that they thought I was gonna quit, or they didn't understand that electric guitar is a real instrument. Um, So they thought that I should start with uh, classical as a foundational thing. Um, They also didn't know that they're two completely different instruments. And, they also figured that I was going to quit. So let's start with this. And, you know, this will scare you... them away from the guitar because it will yeah. be so difficult and so foreign yeah. to what you're actually listening to. Basically. Yeah. And they made me a deal that if I stuck it out for six months, they'd get me an electric. So I ah. stuck it out for six months um, and kind of just went from there. But they were really not into me getting a guitar they like really uh short of like forbidding it um they really really tried to steer me away from it as as much as they could but there's only so much you can do that like if you if a kid really wants to get into something they're gonna get into it somehow so there was no there was no stopping me once uh once i decided that's what i wanted and it's like a, a kid sometimes you know when we're kids we're like you know what is it the immovable object and irresistible force it's like we're just a river flowing and i feel like parenting oftentimes is is you can direct the flow a little bit and you know put up some guardrails and channel it somewhere but if you're if you're trying to push it in the other direction or stop it or you know what i mean it's like it's a, a fool's errand you know i just i don't think that's even possible <laughs> 
Yeah. And they realized that, you know, I was lucky to be the first. Um, so I think as, uh, as my brothers had an easier time, um, than I did with that stuff. Uh, but I actually kind of think that inadvertently they did me a huge service by, um, by putting up resistance because since I did have a good upbringing, um, you know, didn't grow up poor, like didn't have like shit ton of adversity or and stuff. Like that's not my background. My background is, uh, I come from a successful musical family. So it was good to get a little resistance, I think, and make me want to fight for it. Mm. Like you got to get that somewhere, somehow you need something in your life that shows you or that tells you that you're not just going to get everything you want without, without a struggle. So, um, so I, I think, I think it's good that they, uh, that they weren't super supportive. Uh, it really strengthened how much I wanted it. And, uh, like for instance, uh, I, from that first guitar and on, I bought all my own guitars, all my own gear. Um, and, that made my level of seriousness for it way higher, I think, than say uh, one of my brothers that was just given instruments right out the gate. Um, it, he didn't keep on pursuing that. And I think part of it is because there was no, there was no resistance whatsoever. Uh, I I do think that having to fight for it is a good thing. Um, That's a really wise perspective to have from that because yeah there is i mean it's like anything right like exercise or something like you have to kind of break it down in order to rebuild and you know there's got yeah, there's got to be some sort of obstacle to overcome to even just learn the life skills necessary to do that because you will inevitably encounter obstacles you know dyer's eve style once you once you get out of yeah. the, the nest you know yeah exactly and so it if you don't have those obstacles just inherent in your life situation, which some people do, some people don't, um, then uh, you kind of need to engineer them or it, you need something to help you grow basically. Yeah. So when you're figuring out riffs, that's crazy. Cause you have that, the piano and, and, violin from earlier and you've got that six months of classical guitar and then you're finally able to sit in your room by yourself and try to figure out power chords and play some of your favorite riffs what were some of the what was some of the earliest stuff that you figured out in terms of bands and songs playing along to records for some reason i figured that i could do hangar 18 right out the gate um that was <laughs> through the stars yeah that was uh well because i hadn't played electric electric guitar yet so i didn't know like i didn't know what distortion was or yeah um, that basically it's like a like you're playing noise like your a distorted guitar is basically um well played distorted guitar is basically finely crafted noise you're controlling noise and making it musical but that's what it is that's what distortion is um and so i don't know i just thought that i could like get a tab book and just learn the 
and Gary Teen solos. And uh, that was you probably could have done the the classical break in Holy Wars. <laughs> uh, no, no, no way. I no the all of that was way beyond. My level. Yeah, <laughs> I was only playing for like uh, six months. There's no, yeah. I was nowhere close to. <laughs> um, so I got a guitar teacher, and he showed me Fade to Black, and that was the first song. Um, awesome. And that was, you know, that's a good one to start with. That was uh, well within range for a beginner. Uh, not all of it, but uh, at least the intro was. Um, and it kind of covered all of the basis for metal for on an introductory level um yeah got, so your, yeah. got your clean guitar got your yeah it's got a lot of different components in there yeah cleans leads power chords palm muting like it kind of it, it's like it's a good primer for metal playing i think starting with megadeth is not a good idea <laughs> <laughs> a good idea but yeah maybe maybe peace cells maybe symphony there might be a couple but yeah it's interesting because it, that makes me think of an interview i saw with hatfield uh, around the time of the uh, initial big four shows and you know the one in sofia and all the ones in europe and whatever and he someone the interviewer had asked him about the the differences and similarities between the four bands and and he say obviously all the bands have a lot of similarities, but he was saying, you know, Anthrax has kind of the sense of humor and the goofier side. Uh, Slayer is just full on aggression, anger, anger, hate, hate. Uh, he, of course, credited Metallica with being about the songs and the songwriting and so on. But it, but his uh, his comment on Megadeth was that it was incredibly technical and precise. And uh, you, you really got a sense that, I mean, obviously, you know, obviously Hetfield's familiar with Megadeth. I think Lars is more the guy in Metallica who's actually regularly listens to Megadeth over the years and is actually really familiar with their catalog. But, but I got, I got the sense that Hetfield, you know, was really watching them at the big four shows and really was struck by like, Oh man, this, you know, and that was, uh, they were just coming off of that rust in peace uh, anniversary tour. And they were doing a lot of those songs. Uh, so yeah, I can only imagine that he was like, "Oh, this is <laughs> this is some very precise technical wizard stuff going on that yeah. we don't necessarily do." I kind of saw it as the gold standard that and uh, being able to actually play master of puppets. Mm. Like I kind of saw those two ends of the spectrum as the gold standard um, for playing guitar back then. They're both they're different approaches and uh, at least in modern metal you see that like everything that is in like say holy wars and master of puppets is kind of most of the modern guitar landscape with the exception of the stuff that um fear factory and mishuga brought into the scene but like you can kind of encapsulate most of uh most not all but most of modern metal playing in those two songs, uh, mm. Puppets and Holy Wars. It's very astute. And you know, when I had Dino on the podcast, he pointed out that a massive part of Fear Factory sound is based on one section of the song one. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> yeah. And as soon as he said, yeah, it's like a key that unlocks. Like as soon as he said that, it was like, holy crap. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of, uh, so there's this book I had like called uh, Where 
where great ideas come from. And um, the argument is that great ideas are typically or almost always the combination of two things that work that uh, that so that previously were not put together. And mm-hmm. so like Dino taking that part from one and then making the whole band like that, that hadn't been done, but he was taking something that already existed. And remember Korn saying that their whole idea was to take Morbid Angel, but get rid of the solos and get rid of the uh, fast parts. So just do all the Morbid Angel slow riffs. And then instead of solos, just have like some heavy ass stuff. That was, yeah. that was like the mission statement for the band. Put some Faith No More and Bad Brains vocals on top of it, and voila, you have something brand new from exactly. things that were old. Yeah, and then it's like Metallica. You can reverse engineer Kill Em All to Motorhead and Diamond Head. You know, and you can... Uh, I, the first time I ever had this same thought that you just referenced from, from reading in the book was something Billy Vallo said to me in an interview years ago. Gosh, probably 20 years ago. Uh, he was like, hey, my band is just typo negative plus U2. Mm-hmm. And again, it was like a key that unlocked. It's like, you know, he didn't invent typo negative. He didn't invent U2, but he did invent what if you put those two bands together? And and what if then, you know, because then it's also all funneled through who you are as a person and your life experience and everything. And yeah, I, I would concur definitely that that's where a lot of great art comes from. And that, I mean, how many movies are pitched in Hollywood with a pitch that starts with, you know, it's like scream meets Halloween with a little bit of true romance. You know, it's like everything is kind of these reference points of what if you put the peanut butter and chocolate together and made it a meal instead of, you know, just a little part in one. Yeah. It's easier to understand that way. I think. Yeah. Conversationally for sure. So as your Metallica journey, went along you know I, I i love the influence of a year and a half in the life because there are you know at the risk of sounding like i'm making a joke there's some life lessons in that thing oh yeah, yeah. i often think about the newstead bit with the sandwiches where he's like you know making sandwiches at catering to take back to the hotel and someone's like what are you doing man like you know you're at the you're at the peak of rock star excess, like, and, uh, you know, and his, I don't remember what the exact quotes are, but sandwiches. yeah. Yeah. And, that's uh, what he said. yeah, it's brilliant. Brilliant. You know, life lessons. <laughs> like, yeah. It, one of many in there for sure. That, yeah. What are you going to do with those millions? I ain't going to spend them on fucking sandwiches. I believe. <laughs> that's what it is yeah it was the mil- yeah i'm not gonna spend the millions on sandwiches brilliant uh yeah and there's you know once you get out and and obviously some kind of monster coming much later that's another one where i think much like spinal tap it's something that no matter what style of music you play or what level commercially you've attained what sized rooms you're playing anyone who has made music with other people can watch some kind of monster, can watch day a year and a half of the life, can watch Spinal Tap and relate and yeah. get it. Man, yeah. one of the reasons I think Metallica is so successful, one of many, is just how 
ballsy they are putting themselves out there mm. regardless of how they'll look so a year and a half of the life of metallica there wasn't so much embarrassing stuff i don't think i'm sure there's some stuff that they personally cringe at but like i mean that's showing them at the at the peak but uh still it's an honest pretty honest look at um and they were putting out demos as b-sides yeah. during the black album you yeah. know with that feel going nah, 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 nah. i mean that's pretty yeah they they were honest I, and i think that that connected um because you saw them as real people but man you're a, some kind of monster wow like the balls it took to put that out is unbelievable like and i i'm not i'm not talking shit like it is really like I respect it a lot because they had to know they had to know how it's going to make them look. There's no way any, they could have watched that and been like, "Who's going to make us look like really cool guys that are really easy to work with and uh, like, like living the dream or something. Um, so I, I think, and I think that a lot of people would have seen that and, like buried it basically not let not let anyone see it ever and make everyone sign ndas and it doesn't exist but no they put it out um and i think that moves like that throughout the years um are why they've stayed in the conversation because at the time that some kind of monster came out they were i don't want to say doing damage repair but the uh the perception of them had changed a little um and saint anger you know that whole time period was, had to be rough on them psychologically but now in retrospect when you looking back at all that uh those decisions those decisions are what kept them top of mind and kind of what makes their story so cool um so cool and so interesting is uh that you have been able to see the development on a personal level, on a musical level, like, and that most of it isn't being hidden from view. So I, I've always thought that that was a big part of why they've managed to stay on top is uh, how honest they are. Absolutely agree. And I think that it, it makes them more relatable. Uh, and as much as, one of the things we love about music and films and art and is when you can kind of identify and when you take that art and apply it to things happening in your own life. And I think the way that they've, the amount of themselves that they put out there through those documentaries and things like that allows us to relate to them that much more on those kind of levels. You know, I read a book that Joe Berlinger, one of the co-directors of some kind of monster wrote about making the documentary and come to find out that him and the late Bruce Sinofsky, his his collaborator for many years, they were going through their own difficulties in their creative partnership while they were making the Metallica documentary. And that uh, the process of documenting that and being part of those conversations and putting their own film together also helped heal them and helped them survive as creative partners. Uh, and, and it's just that then just expands exponentially to you know folks who who watch it now and i understand the impulse that a lot of bands would have to bury something like that but i'm so glad they put it out there and i'm so glad that also and this is a 
topic that came up just a couple of days ago in a different conversation, but having the courage to fail, I think is so important with art oh, yeah. and is uh, really missing, particularly in our genre, uh, in the metal genre these days. Um, there are a lot of fear-based decisions made and a lot of, uh, you know, you, you, you can't win for losing anyway, because if, you know, band puts out a new record and everyone says, oh, I wish it sounded like the last one. And when, when the next one comes out, they wish that then the next one sounded like the one that they didn't like last time. And if you do a record trying to appease them by making the record, they all say they want, then they say, oh, this is, you know, you're just repeating yourselves. Like it's kind of, you know, to make these fear-based decisions as opposed to taking risks and challenging your audience, which I think Metallica almost always does in some way. Uh, I think that that's so much more exciting. It's so much more interesting. It's so much more worthy of constant conversation of, you know, being a band that you can have a whole podcast about. I think it's because they challenge the audience and, and it doesn't always succeed. They've done things that even myself as a guy doing this podcast and being a super fan, so to speak, they've done things that I didn't love. Um, and I'm sure the guys in the band would say the same of different things, maybe things they did that I loved that they didn't love. Uh, you know, and that's at the end of the day, when there's a legacy and there's a body of work and there's a whole catalog, like that's what, that's what you want. You know, I think the ACDCs and the motorheads are exceptions that only prove the rule, you know, because, because you can point to those bands and go, well, they kind of just make the same record over and over. And it's like, yeah. And we, we note that as noteworthy, because it's not really what you should do. It just so happens they've done it and done it well, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But that's the exception proving the rule as opposed to disproving it. Yeah. The it's uh this fear-based decision-making um, is a very tough thing to get around. A lot of it has to do with how the old music industry, uh, I don't want to say it was structured, but the culture of it. And I can tell you from an artist's perspective, um, I don't think anyone did this intentionally, but being an artist coming into a big label situation um, and set, like first time in that kind of situation, there was a lot of fear uh, involved and no one was trying to scare us, but it's just in the, in the way that people communicate. Mm. Um, and I, I think that like, I don't know, if, I don't get, maybe it doesn't affect me the way it used to. Um, but I do think that a lot of that is like built, baked into the music industry culture. And so when artists make fear-based decisions, um, yeah, ultimately it's their decision. But, uh, you know, when I, when I see that stuff happening, I'm thinking, well, who is advising them and like, what's a what's going on here like how did a how did this entire team arrive at this decision it's not mm -hmm. just one person acting scared it's a it's probably one person being scared talking to another person after uh being strong-armed or influenced for a long time by other people who were afraid of uh messing it up with someone else because they've got something else hanging in the balance. It's a, yeah, it's complicated stuff. Um, it is, but in the case of, uh, just Metallica or any artist with a huge body of work, I think it's asking a lot to 
have to expect an artist to always put out something that you love the same amount as something else they did that uh that happened at like a pivotal point in your life like mm-hmm. it's, it's time place like, and circumstance i say that yeah. all the time who, who yeah, you can't more about who you that. were than who they are yeah yeah i can't think of a single artist whose body of work i like everything from or love everything from one of my favorite directors favorite bands mm-hmm. favorite composers all of them have albums songs movies whatever that i don't like and in some cases hate and uh thing is that the stuff by them that i love matters more to me than the stuff mm-hmm. by them that i hate so like yes there are some things metallica put out that were uh like I do not like him at all, but like, so what? Like, I mean, you're talking about decades worth of output. Of course, that's going to happen. And I'm glad that it exists. Everything they've done, I'm glad it exists because each of it serves a purpose in their creative journey that uh, was interesting and exciting. And uh, even if it didn't connect with me in the way other stuff is connected. And yeah, and there's also the time, place, and circumstance thing. Like, I will never see uh you know I'll, I'll never see pulp fiction again for the first time in the theater you know and I, i've loved um virtually everything tarantino has done but i can't recapture that moment of being the age that i was and the person i was and sitting in the theater where i was and having my mind blown by that particular film and and i try to be mindful of that when evaluating how i feel about other stuff and Certainly, you know, I'll never be four years old seeing Star Wars for the first time again. And uh, I'll never hear Rain and Blood for the first time again. (laughs) You know, so uh, when Repentless rolls along, I have all of those memories of hearing Rain and Blood for the first time, hearing Hello Waits for the first time, going to the record store and buying South of Heaven the day it came out. Uh, You can't separate all of that, but I think you know, the the wiser sort of view is to understand that about yourself and about the way you experience this art and not to put too much of your own baggage onto the artist. <laughs> and, and that's not to say that we should give everything a pass that every legacy act does. Uh, certainly not saying that at all, but, but just to be a little mindful and, and to be that. And for me to be, to have that much more respect when artists take risks you know, I mean, Avenged Sevenfold did Hail to the King, which was essentially a greatest hits of decades of hard rock and metal where they had reverse engineered the most familiar beats of, uh, you know, and I mean, I don't mean beats literally, but, you know, they had reverse engineered ACDC, Metallica, Guns N' Roses, Megadeth, and made this record that was like, what if we made a hard rock record that that had every single one of those stadium moving uh, anthemic moments that we associate with the genre. And then the next record they made was, you know, a 80 minute long concept album with Neil deGrasse Tyson talking at the end of it, surprise released, uh, you know, proggy uh, esoteric trip. And uh, I have so much more respect for that than what would have been the safe and easy route of, Hey, that last thing we did was hugely successful for us. Let's just do that again. Um, and it reminds me of, you know, kind of full circle 
bringing us back to something you said about some of your classmates at Berkeley and the things we don't want to hear, right? There's this great quote from Duff McKagan where he was, he was on CNN talking about getting his economics degree post guns and, and all of that. And, and he was going, look, the people that advise bands when they're on the way up, uh, no one sits a band down and says, okay, you've got a top 10 hit. You've got a gold record. You're playing 5,000 seat venues. This might be as good as it gets. So let's make some plans. Let's invest in some other things. Do you have other interests? Are there other side careers that can kind of spin off from what you're doing here? You know, do you want to get into producing? Do you want to do co-writes with people? No one says that because what the band wants to hear is, oh, you have a top 10 hit. We're going to number one. Got a gold album. We're going platinum. Playing mm-hmm. 5,000 seaters this year. We're doing 10,000 seaters next year. And everyone who doesn't say that in their camp gets fired. <laughs> And they and replaced by someone who does. Uh, so there is a, that difficult balance between managing expectations and still having ambition. Yeah, it reminds me again of, of coming back to your point of, um, you know, professors trying to impress upon students that like, hey, it doesn't, you know, you might not become Miles Davis, but that doesn't mean uh, you know, it's that or washing dishes. There, there are a number of fulfilling lives for you in between. We, you know, when we're young and hungry, we don't, don't want to hear that. I know I didn't want to hear that when I was young and hungry, but, but I already kind of knew that anyways. So Mm. thing is I, I, uh, it wasn't like, I didn't want to hear it just because I was so like, focus on what I was doing but I already knew that so yeah I feel like the people who didn't know that probably needed to hear it for the first time so on on this tip what would you say in your career which is diverse and I mean you I I think that we're kindred spirits in the sense that we both do a number of different things that on paper on paper might seem disconnected from one another and it's like oh you wear so many hats you do too many things but i think in our daily life and our experience they're actually all interwoven um yep. certainly that's more my experience uh it's all the same thing yeah it's all the same thing right um you know whether i'm uh before i jumped on with you i was working on this comic book that i'm writing uh with uh spencer from ice nine kills uh, after I talk to you, I'm talking with a comic company about a comic that Ryan from Demon Hunter, who I manage, worked on. And uh, all of, I mean, I'm going to have Metallica references in this comic I'm writing. <laughs> it's, it's all its all interconnected somehow, you know. Uh, what would you say are some of the lessons that you've been able to take from Metallica, kind of watching their career and and, you know, whether it's the the documentaries, the 3D movie, the festival, getting their masters back at a time when most bands hadn't figured that out, you know, buying a record pressing plant, having their fan club, whatever, all the different things in that Metallica ecosystem. What are some of those lessons that you've been able to apply in your life and your work and all the different things that you're doing so successfully now? Uh, So if you go back to a year and a half in the life of, um, they showed Bob Rock uh, really having a big hand in everything, in crafting the songs, 
like putting them in their place. Like they, I know a lot of bands are like also wouldn't show that they wouldn't show, excuse me. They wouldn't show that the producer wrote that line Mm. or told you that line fucking sucks. Do this instead or whatever. You're not ready to play the solo. Come back when you are, or you know, writes the part for them, uh, whatever, like the reality of production. Um, seeing that it didn't make me want to be Bob rock, but I think it, it like put in my mind the idea that you need, it's okay. You should work with people that are going to make you sound better. Mm -hmm. Um, and so with my band, when I decided, like I decided in 2003, no longer want to be a local band. Uh, we I want to get signed to Roadrunner, and uh, and that became my mission. We're going to get signed to Roadrunner. We're not doing indie. We're and now it can be argued if that was a mistake or not. But like my goal was to get signed to Roadrunner right out the gate, and um, I knew that I needed to have something that sounded a lot better than what I had at the time. And, um, and not just go to the better local studio, but like you got to get someone that is like a lot better and who is working at the level that you're going for. That's what I did. And it worked. That's the, that was the stuff that Monty Connor heard that got assigned. And that whole idea of the importance of the right producer and mixer, um, came from that from the Metallica videos because otherwise you look at people around me they didn't understand what producers did they didn't understand why you should invest in it like they knew you go to the studio but the the link between how fucking ridiculous the black album is like in a good way yeah and the production and the production choices i think that was lost on a lot of people, but it wasn't lost on me. And mm. so like I, when, like I said, when the decision was made that I'm getting this band signed, fuck this local shit. Um, one of the, there were, there was a whole set of things that I did, but, um, upgrading the sound was definitely one of them. And it was based on, based on having seen that. Like basically from seeing that on forward, uh, like I always knew that that was the thing, one of the most important things. Um, there's, there's a bunch of lessons from those Metallica videos. I could just keep going, but, um, feel free. Uh, I mean, I love the Bob rock lesson in, uh, because it is, I mean, arguably the best sounding hard rock record ever i mean some might say mutt lang with his you know eight million backing vocal courses and uh but i mean i think the black album is the pinnacle sonically and you're right especially when you're a kid you don't necessarily think you don't necessarily know what a what a record producer does you know and of course producing means a lot of different things even in a lot of different genres right i mean in, in hip-hop the producer is sometimes building every single part of the song mm-hmm minus the vocal and sometimes even the producers who do that in hip-hop have a team of people who are actually doing that and they're kind of overseeing it or maybe you have a a rick rubin or a ross robinson where their their expertise isn't so much technical as it is um performance and and relationship wise and getting 
you know, getting these performances out of these musicians. Um, you know, so obviously even within that, there's a lot of different kind of varieties of, of uh, technique and approach, but yeah, that whatever Bob Rock did uh, on the black album. And I would say load and reload also, those are just I think, some of the best sounding records. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in now, even now in bringing my band back, uh, like, I could have done it myself, but I still went, I still got who I thought would be the right production staff. And uh, I mean, obviously it wasn't a bad decision because we signed a metal blade before we released anything new. And it was uh, for the strength of what we, what we got mixed uh, in Sweden. So like that, that's something that has stuck with me for now, what, like three decades now of, get the right people on your stuff. Like, don't just think that because you, and especially nowadays where everybody has home recording tools and like, and this is me saying this, me who like runs a company that shows people how to do this themselves. Right. I like, I still think that when it comes down to it, um, if you really, really care about your own art, um, in your band, uh, get a get a get someone besides yourself um yeah there's a couple exceptions out there but those are anomalies like those those types that can self-produce and self-mix and it's amazing like those are complete anomalies um, it's hard enough to produce and mix without your ears being fried seriously produce mix and master i mean i think it's i think there's such a benefit in having three different people for all three of those things if for nothing else than just the different perspective opinion different relationship to the material somebody who's not fried when, yeah. they, when it's their turn there's another thing um there's this one part where they had just gotten off a show you know in the part two where her Hammett shows this giant bruise on his uh i think on his palm he says like metal but it's like it's a pretty bad bruise and uh, I immediately connected the dots between metal and it being a contact sport on the instrument. And I think that nowadays, with the amount of players that I know who have hurt themselves playing metal, um, it, it, I realized that like they were showing that. And back then, no one talked about that kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, you know, they didn't have like a PSA about repetitive motion injuries, but they showed one right then and there for you to see, like he fucked up his hand on playing guitar. Um, nowadays that's part, that's kind of just an understood thing is like you play too much, you play too hard. You're going to fuck yourself up. You need, you need to like, if you want this to last a long time, you need to approach your playing the way you would anything physical. Uh, you need to approach it like MMA or anything where there's a high possibility of you hurting yourself because metal is not a, uh, it's not a body friendly genre. Like what you need for metal guitar and metal drums is the same is not like the older you get, especially it's going to hurt you. Um, and I just saw an interview with a, Gary Holt talking about this and I know when he came on one of my podcasts we talked about it that like the downpicking mm. uh it just 
it kills you after a while. So, uh, actually having seen that in the Metallica video when I was like 14, uh, put that in my head, like a direct link between hurting yourself and down picking. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and it, that played a, that played a part of my life. Cause, uh, I remember at Berkeley, um, there would be these kids that would practice like 12 hours a day. And I have a, I just remember thinking, man, you're stupid. And then they'd, they'd go, they'd disappear and you wouldn't see them in the practice rooms for months. And then they come back and have like this cast on their wrist and forearms and like had, they had permanently messed themselves up. And I saw that so many times and, uh, and that I developed this awareness about the injury factor um and just kind of just tried to navigate my way around it um thanks to that because i wouldn't have i i don't know if i would have uh come to that conclusion any other way there there's a bunch of stuff i watch those videos a lot i love it as james hetfield said himself once three out of four front men from the big four have had neck surgery Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like we you know when you think about that style of guitar playing and down picking and everything that Hetfield and Mustaine and these guys really uh innovated and perfected and then when you think about even just head banging and the physicality of the performances we're just now arriving at a point where you know guys in that generation of bands are, are turning 60 and um certainly we see Paul McCartney's out there killing it. We see the Rolling Stones going hard. And, you know, so we, we have these generations of rockers who are older than Metallica who are still out there, you know, Springsteen's out there and whatever. But we have yet to see how far you can go with extreme metal, with music like Metallica's that is so fast, so aggressive, even just, you know, the wear and tear on, on the shoulders for Lars and, you know, like you said, the down picking wrists, forearms, um, backs, necks. Uh, we don't it's know bad. yet because nobody's gotten there, you know? Yeah. I don't know how far you can go. Dude, it's bad. When we did Ozfest in 07, I remember this was one of my first time around a lot of these bands that, uh, that I thought were cool. Um, and, a lot of them were like 10 years older than us, I guess. Um, they were like 36, 37. And I remember all of them had neck problems. All of them, every single one. And they weren't even 40 yet. Um, so this, I feel like Metallica were not afraid to show you that it's a contact sport. Um, down picking. Uh, as far as down picking goes, uh, I mean, people have talked about that a lot already, but I mean, it kind of got to, got to mention it, that, um, master of puppets is still considered the gold standard for down picking. Like if you think you can down pick, you, you don't really know if you can on if, until you've tried to play that song, that's still, that's still considered like 
the test, I think. There's so much stuff um, that they've contributed. It's, I think uh, that song is the definitive Metallica song and arguably the definitive metal song. Pretty much. And it's just perfect from start to finish. It encapsulates so many different things about what is, what is metal and what is Metallica specifically. And uh, yeah, so much of it. I, I bring it up on the podcast all the time. The right hand of Hetfield, you know, because oftentimes when you think about metal, you think about shredding. But when I think about Metallica in particular, specifically, I think about downpicking and palm muting and and that right hand and the accuracy, the precision, the uh, the feel, um, all of it. It's just immeasurably cool. I think I think it's interesting with them about the shredding and what actually matters um, because you always. And look, I don't, I, I'm not in that camp of thinking that like Kirk's not good at guitar, Lars isn't good at drums. I think they're all good, but they're not like a technical band. Um, and they never really have been too much of a technical band. There were always more technical bands. And I think people getting into metal as musicians, like they have this idea of like the importance of technicality and Maybe it matters to some degree. I mean, look, to be able to even play Master Puppets, you have to have some level of ability that's mm -hmm. beyond the norm. But it, Metallica being the biggest metal band in the world and not being the most technical band in the world is a little clue as to what is actually important. What, like in, in the hierarchy of uh, what matters, why is it that a band that's not the most technical in the genre or the fastest is the biggest? Um, and I think er everyone who's trying to make metal should answer that question for themselves. But for me, it's because songs matter more than any of that shit. And um, that stuff is cool. The technicality is cool, but it's not more important than songs. And um, you see a lot of people who get mad about that like do you remember when grunge came out and so people were no longer playing solos mm -hmm. very much uh mm -hmm. or you had a lot of guitar players that were very pissed off about this and they didn't understand how like how can someone appreciate a four note solo when like i played four thousand notes you know like they had a real hard time understanding it and there's nothing tough about it to understand that shit is not what matters what matters is songs so it doesn't matter Feel. yeah Groove. yeah Ex exactly i mean great guitar solos do matter but technical guitar solos don't and uh the solos that get remembered still are the ones that are written written the best so i think in metallica's success there's a lot of clues as to what really, really matters, I think, to, I guess, the, the wider audience. I'll say this. I love Marty Friedman. I love Me Chris Bolin. I love the sort of flowery, super melodic thing that Marty does. But I'll take a Mustang solo all day long over those two guys. And his are less technical and noisier, scrappier. 
Uh, but there's just a certain feel and a certain attack to a Mustang solo that moves me in a way that something more polished and uh, complicated doesn't necessarily, you know? So yeah, there's a lot to be said for that for sure. Well, I think it's, it's like, uh, I look at it beyond my own personal tastes because personal tastes, I would rather have Marty Friedman type solos, Hmm. but like beyond my personal tastes, just looking at like at the end of the day, who is the one filling up the stadiums? Like it doesn't to, at the end of the day, my personal taste on solos doesn't matter. Like the population at large responds, um, to what the population at large is into, then there's no way to really, there's no way to take that. Um, and so that's why, that's why I came to the conclusion that there's a hierarchy and that I, my personal tastes don't matter in, I guess, this grander hierarchy of what, uh, what makes music successful or not. Um, I, I like a solo that I can sing. And I think that yeah. even, you know, I love the entire death catalog, but my favorite records are, you know, uh, individual thought patterns, symbolic. And, and yeah, and it's like those records are very technical and complex, but they're just, they're so, they're also just so musical, you know, and it's so just great note choices and things that move you and and that are memorable and then you, you you know it's like complicated stuff that you can also sing and yeah it's such a it's such a hard balance because yeah complexity for its own sake is um impressive but boring <laughs> you know yeah it and the, i i'm not saying that people should dumb their music down or right. anybody else at all just speaking mostly like just as an observer um as an outside observer to some bands, massive, massive success. It's interesting to try and break down. Why was it them and not, not the other bands around mm-hmm. them who had some objectively better traits. Right. Right. Like right. objectively more, I mean, objectively tighter drumming or something mm-hmm. faster, like all these things that you, that are supposedly important why and so i i think that that's always an interesting thing to try to figure out because uh metallica doesn't really even have double bass like it it, they do in a few songs but like that's not even really part of their sound for the most part i stumbled across a youtube video where a guy you know a little snootily was uh performing He's reinterpreting drum drum parts to ride the lightning songs, you know, and talking about the untraditional way that Lars plays and what those songs would sound like if, uh, you know, if it was on this beat instead of that beat. Like basically, like what if it was like a more kind of traditional uh, drum pattern to those songs? And granted, I know that I have an in- inherent bias because I've been listening to these songs for decades, and they're part of my heart and soul and DNA. But I, but I still think even objectively, um, it wasn't very cool. You know, it was just like, well, sorry, dude, but <laughs> apparently Lars knew something you didn't because by doing it the way he did it, the songs became what they are. And it just doesn't, it's just not the same. This 
way that you've exactly fixed the drumming. Yeah, yeah. That, it's not fixed. Uh, it's perfect the way it is. Mm-hmm. But and that I, goes that's... back to the argument of why they don't go back and put bass in Andros's for all. It just is what it is, man. It's been discussed to death about why the record sounds the way it does. But that's how it sounds. That's how we heard it. And and the opinion that I'm spouting right now is also the same one uh, spouted by Jason Newstead, the guy whose bass was evaporated from the record. He says yeah, the but, same thing. You know, but what you just said about that drummer and that drum video is it is I it's the same mentality as what I was talking about with those guitar players who could not understand how those grunge solos were allowed to happen. And it's like, because that shit, you're the thing you think is important is not important. That's why, um, that guy trying to fix, uh, Lars's drum parts is completely missing the point. hundred percent. It's kind of funny actually, but it's also, also makes me wonder like, uh, like, do you actually think that it's better with like your drumming? Fucking delusional. Yeah. And also, what does it say about how interesting and cool and unique the drumming that that's on the records is when a whole little mini subculture of YouTube videos talking about the drums can can ha- you know, it's like you can't name any other drummers or bands or records that uh, can inspire that much discussion about such nuanced things that entire videos are made and viewed thousands of times. Uh, Lars's drum writing is awesome. And uh, I think the lack of technicality, um, it basically, he found other ways to make it work. And uh, it's almost like he has like hooks in his drumming. Yeah, 100% has hooks. And the Black Album especially, but throughout the catalog, and I, I say this all the time, you know, there are a lot of rock songs, not just metal rock songs, you know, and obviously I'm, you know, I, I put Dave Lombardo in the same category. There's, there's a handful of, of cats, right? But there's a lot of rock songs where if you're, if you're in a bar band and you're covering it, as long as you have the right tempo, the fills can kind of be whatever the fills are in the same places. And it sounds like the song, right? In terms of what the drums are doing in a lot of rock songs, if you're covering it, if you're covering a Metallica song, if those fills aren't exact, it's not the same song, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's not, it's not the same song at all. And okay. So when you think about, uh, what copyright normally is, um, I say normally because, you know, people can choose to change what goes, what, like how stuff is going to get split. But traditionally, if you don't say anything, those drums are not going to be you're you're not going to get publishing for drums, right? And um, because it's lyrics, it's uh, lyrics and melody, um, which I think is super antiquated and stupid because there are genres of music that have come since then where the lyrics and the melody some don't even have melody. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one and number two, um, there's different stuff that matters in these genres so like in metallica yes you could you can take the guitars and rearrange them for like smooth jazz and it would still be master of puppets but that uh 
his drumming is part of the song. It, whereas in a lot of uh, a lot of music, it's just accompaniment. Um, the the drumming the drumming defines defines the song. It's a it's a really interesting thing, um, because I don't think that we would know the song as the song if it had different drumming. Yeah, and there are yeah Gene Hoblin, Lombardo. You know, there's a few few of those guys where it's, uh, you know, what their what their contributions were to those songs are irreplaceable. And you're right; it is an antiquated way of. And for people listening, you, know, you often hear the question in the music business: What are the rules? What are the laws? Well, there really aren't rules. It's more uh, unwritten rules and understandings. Um, some bands say we're going to divide up the public. There's only so much money to go around between merch and shows and performance royalties. We're going to divide up publishing equally just to avoid arguments. And then uh, some bands, most bands will say, well, whoever wrote the music air quotes is half of it. And whoever wrote the lyrics is the other half. And for, yeah, a lot of the rock and metal genre, the, the, the lyrics there's no melody. It's even just, it's phrasing maybe that the singer's coming up with is what, what sort of patterns are the, those lyrics being spouted in. But uh, yeah, even when you have that argument of music, it's usually what a guitar player writes riffs, arranges it, maybe programs some drums on the demo, gives it to the band. Uh, in those scenarios, yeah, I understand where the guitar player says, I wrote this song. But if you have a Lars or a Lombardo or, or one of those really uniquely identifiable drummers, and this is to say nothing of the arranging that we know Lars does and how Lars writes the solos with Kirk um, and, and or oftentimes has, even even taking that away, those kind of drummers are, are clearly adding something that can and, and should qualify as, as songwriting. So yeah, so it's really interesting, you know, when you when you see the liner notes for a lot of metal songs and it might just be credited to one person or two people. And uh, sometimes that's maybe fair and sometimes not so fair. I mean, I, I saw a, a quote from uh, Ben from Dillinger Escape Plan and, and he's a, he's a friend and somebody I've known since the nineties. So I'm not trying to throw him under the bus, but just by way of example, there was a, an interview he did once where he said he was 99% of the music of Dillinger Escape Plan. And it's like, I, I I know where you're coming from and I understand why you're saying that because you are the creative engine that is, um, you're, you're writing those riffs and you're arranging those songs and you're handing them to a singer who's putting vocals over it. But uh, man, does that discount <laughs> what those vocals are and what those lyrics are uh, and what, you know, someone they have a singing chorus, what those melodies are. And honestly, I think it discounts what, the drummers were doing on those records and and maybe where they, did they have a hand in arranging again i'm not trying to throw him under the bus because it's a it's a systemic thing in our genre I, he's certainly not going to be the only guitar player in an extreme metal band who feels that he is responsible he or she is responsible for 99 percent of the music but i understand why i understand why certain people say that about their bands and i understand why certain other people in their bands bristle against it and resent that being said yeah and every situation is unique but the thing that 
thing that I feel is just true is that the old way of, uh, of defining a composition is, is no longer applies. You're like a part two and three and four. Cause I feel like there's so much Metallica to get into, but I also wanted Anytime. to dig into getting to know you better. And, um, this has been awesome, man. It's been really fun. Likewise, man. Thank you very much. Um, you know, it's rare to go on a podcast where, where I feel like I'm talking to someone who, uh, knows what they're doing. Like I, I went on docs recently and he knows how to, he knows how to do this, but lots of times you go on podcasts and, uh, it sucks. And, uh, so this is the opposite. Um, awesome. ask great questions. And I mean, I was not expecting it to not be great, but, uh, but I appreciate how good you are at this. That is a massive compliment because this is my far and away my favorite thing to do. Uh, I figured out somewhere, you know, between me being in bands and things I've done in my career, um, writing is fun and whatever, but my, my favorite thing is conversation. So I love that the medium continues to broaden that there's more of a place for this and more of a place for long form conversations because one thing that was a blessing and a curse, you know, in the MTV days would be, you know, spending two hours with Billy Idol to get a 15 second soundbite that mm -hmm. was going to air once during TRL and never be seen again. I don't miss that. <laughs> and I love, I love that this exists now, you know, where stuff can go and be heard and be long and, and kind of live forever. So for sure. Yeah, dude, uh, we'll have a great rest of your day and um, let's you. do this you again too. sometime. For sure.